0: If you don't have a Bible, you can look in the seat back in front of you and pull one out and open to page 716 in that Bible. We're looking at Mark 10. We'll start up in verse 32 and be looking at the passage that goes through verse 42. So Mark 10, 32 to four, I'm sorry, 45. 32 to 45. Several years back, Christianity Today magazine told the story of Marion Mill. She was born in a fairy tale royal palace in Hungary, and her first spoon was a gold one. They sent her to school in Vienna, and she became an actress there, and she fell in love with a young medical student named Otto. Otto and Marion married, and they went to live in Hollywood, and there, as they set up house, he began to dabble in movies. And he eventually became the internationally famed movie director, Otto Preminger. Marion's beauty and wit and irresistible charm brought her everything that a woman desires. And in Europe and New York and Hollywood, she became a famous international hostess. But Otto's princess could not handle the fast life of Hollywood, and she went into alcohol and drugs and numerous affairs. And her life became so sordid, even for Hollywood, that Otto divorced her. She tried to take her own life three times, and it was unsuccessful, and finally she moved back to Vienna. There, at a party, she met another doctor named Albert Schweitzer, the well-known missionary and Bible scholar. And Schweitzer was home on leave from his hospital in Lamberine, Africa. And Marion was so drawn to Schweitzer that, that she asked to meet with him, and, and she wound up meeting with him every week for the six months that he was there on home leave. And at the end of that time, when it was time for him to go back to Africa, she begged him to let her go with him. And Schweitzer surprised everyone by agreeing. And Marion. The young princess, who was born in a palace, then went to live in a little village in Lambrine, Africa, and spent the rest of her life emptying bedpans and tearing up sheets to make bandages for the putrid sores of the poverty-stricken locals. When she died, Time magazine quoted from her autobiography, All I Want is Everything, and it quoted these words. Albert Schweitzer says there are two kinds of people. There are the helpers and the non-helpers. I thank God he allowed me to become a helper, and in helping, I found everything." In today's story in Mark's Gospel, Jesus helps us to find everything, too. And to get us started, let me remind us where we're at in Mark's Gospel. As I mentioned two weeks ago, we're in what is called the Way section of Mark, because the word way occurs seven times in this short section. Here's how one Bible scholar uh, drew it. If our slides are working. There we go. Remember, this section is working with imagery from the book of Isaiah, particularly the theme of the new Exodus, which God's servant was going to lead God's people on out of their captivity back to Jerusalem, the place of God's presence. And we saw two weeks ago that this section begins and ends, this section in Mark, with the healing of a blind man. In the first case, the man needs two touches before he can see clearly. In between those two healing miracles, Jesus teaches three times about the cross along this way. Jesus is trying to give his half-blind disciples the second touch that they so desperately need. So today we're going to look at the third of these second touches, the third time that Jesus teaches his followers about the way of the cross. And I find the opening sentence of this story in verse 32 to be striking and gripping. They were on their way, there's that word way, up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. What a picture. Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem and all that he knows awaits him there. He's striding there purposefully ahead of his followers and they're straggling along behind and they're full of fear and astonishment. They're still half blind. They don't yet get the way that Jesus is going to be king. And along the way, Jesus has warned them twice already of his impending death. And if you read Mark 9 and 10, you also see that Jesus has been spelling out for them graphically and practically what it means for them to follow him as a crucified Messiah. It means they must lose their lives to find them. It means they must become last if they want to be first. They must become servants if they want to be great. It means they must remain faithful to their spouses when it would be easier to run away. It means that they must use their riches to bless the poor if they would enter God's kingdom. A kingdom which Jesus says belongs to helpless, weak children. And the disciples must humble themselves and become like these children if they want to enter this kingdom. And for taking such troubles, Jesus assures them, they will receive persecutions. No wonder those following Jesus are astonished and afraid. I mean, if you read Mark 9 and 10 and you are not astonished and afraid, you better go back and read it again. I mean, some people think of Jesus as gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And Jesus is that, but Jesus also has a fierce side. He isn't afraid to challenge and to undo us when that's what it takes. And that is what it takes if we are ever going to become the people God longs for us to be. And if this world is ever going to be healed. Preachers, for good reason, like to quote C.S. Lewis at this point or on this point where in in Lewis's Narnia books, he he portrays the the Jesus figure in the story as Aslan, a, a great lion who is not safe, but who is good. That's Jesus. Notice Jesus hasn't given up on his followers, quavering though they may be, as they tag along behind him, and they haven't given up on him. They're still drawn to him, they're still following him. Then Mark tells us that Jesus pulls aside his 12 closest disciples and he tells them in detail all that will happen to him in Jerusalem. For the third time, the final time along the way of the new exodus, Jesus predicts and reinforces his impending death. Jesus knows what is going to happen to him in Jerusalem, and he's striding resolutely toward that fate. Now, let's step back from that picture and try to put Jesus and his disciples at this moment in the context in which they lived. They didn't live in in a kind of relatively stable business-as-usual time like we live in now. No, the situation that they live in was more like the unstable, war-torn, or or more like that of an unstable, war-torn third world country. That's the time, the place they lived in. Israel was under Roman occupation. The majority of people lived in grinding poverty. The economic deck was stacked against the common people, while a few elite folk got filthy rich. The security situation was tenuous. Parents always sent their kids out in the morning, always wondering and praying about whether those kids would come back home at night. There were often grisly stories circulating of some unfortunate person who experienced horrible, cruel injustice. And God's people must have been wondering, where were the promises of God for his people during this time? We saw when we looked at the book of Isaiah that that God had sent his people to Babylon into captivity centuries before because of the people's sins. And while God in his mercy had then brought the Jews back to to their homeland in the days of Cyrus the Persian, the people never really got their freedom again. Things never really turned around for them. They had to serve the Persian Empire after the Babylonian. And then it was the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great and those who came after him. And now the Romans were their overlords and the Romans were harsh and oppressive. And from a Jewish perspective, of course, they were dirty and unclean and godless too. And the Jews badly needed salvation. God's people still needed that new exodus that Isaiah had promised them out of captivity back into freedom as God's people where they could enjoy God's presence again and flourish. And historians tell us that this was a pervasive longing among the Jews of Jesus' day. They were longing for this new exodus, for for freedom. But but how would it happen? Well, various groups among the Jews had their own ideas. and, And for all of them, this was both a deeply religious and a deeply political struggle. The Pharisees felt that holiness was the key. If they could just get all of God's people to behave, to be holy, then God would surely return and rescue his people. The zealots felt that faithful resistance in God's name was the key. If enough people just had the courage and the faith to stand up for God and to risk their lives for his cause, then surely God would side with their revolution and grant them victory. And in the past, when these revolutions hadn't gone well and pious warriors had been martyred for what they saw to be God's holy cause, the zealots took comfort in the hope that somehow the shedding of their faithful blood would in some way atone for the sins of God's unfaithful people and regain God's favor for his people. Well, Jesus shares the aspirations of his fellow Jews. He, he longs for his people to be free, and, and he is zealously willing to give everything for that cause. But Jesus' own understanding of how God would bring that salvation about, and of his own role in it, is radically different. From Jesus' own study of the scriptures and his prayerful and obedient attentiveness to the Father's voice and the Father's will, and from Jesus' own self-understanding of who he was as God's Son and why he had come, Jesus, unlike anyone else, has come to understand and to embody God's real heart on the matter. And this heart can be explained in terms of the conjunction of two passages of Scripture which were very popular in Jesus' day. Daniel 7, which spoke about one like a son of man, and Isaiah 53, which spoke about a suffering servant. Daniel 7 foretells a great war in which terrible beastly nations, Babylon, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, oppress God's people greatly. But, but then Daniel 7 promises that the judgment of God would come in which God destroys these pagan kingdoms and hands his kingdom over to one like a son of man. Isaiah 53, as we saw several weeks ago, laments the great sinfulness and failure of God's people who are in exile and describes a suffering servant whom God would punish and crush so that God's people can be forgiven and reconciled to God. Now for the Jews of Jesus' day, they loved the idea of Daniel 7. They anticipated that their Messiah would be like the Son of Man of Daniel 7 and that God would give him the victory over the beastly nations and set him up as the everlasting King of the earth. The suffering servant of Isaiah 43, though, was always an enigma No one ever seriously considered that that this servant would somehow be the Messiah they were looking for. Jesus alone saw that these two figures were one and the same. Jesus saw that it was God's heart to give his people victory, to to rescue them from their enemies, and, and to give them an everlasting kingdom, Daniel 7. But it would happen, Jesus knew, through suffering and defeat and self-sacrifice, Isaiah 53. Not through the Pharisees' program of making everyone keep a bunch of religious rules. Not through the Zealots' program of gaining the kingdom by force, of dying in battle as some way of atoning for sins or forcing God's hand to come and take their side. Instead, Jesus knew that God would both defeat His enemies and redeem his sinful, unfaithful people through a servant who would freely and peaceably give his life as a ransom for many. And lacking any other servant willing or able to take on this task, God took it on himself. In Jesus, God himself came to be our servant and to give his life in our place as our ransom. It strikes me at this point In Jesus' story along the way to Jerusalem, Jesus is out in front of his disciples. He's leading the way. Usually throughout the Gospels, you get the sense that Jesus is kind of strolling along and his disciples are all around him, right? But not now. Not now. Now Jesus is out in front. When it comes to humility and to service, and even to death, God is out in front, leading the way, the first one into battle, so to speak. Brothers and sisters, this is the heart of God here. God, though high and holy and lifted up, would rather come down and humble himself and serve us, sinful and selfish though we are, then stay in heaven and enjoy himself up there. That's what God is like. God will pay our debt. God will direct upon himself his own anger and wrath and indignation for the maddening sins and offenses and unfaithfulnesses of his people. God will give generously to us. God will serve us so that he may win us back. So that he may love us. That is God's heart. In 1878, Queen Victoria's daughter, Princess Alice, died at age 35. And in announcing this tragedy to the House of Commons, Prime Minister William Gladstone told the touching story that the princess's little daughter had contracted diphtheria, a life-threatening disease at that time. And the doctors warned the princess not to endanger her own life by breathing her child's breath. But once, when, when the child was struggling to breathe, the mother, forgetting herself entirely, took her little child into her arms to keep her from choking to death. And, and the little girl, rasping and, and struggling for her life, said, Mama, kiss me. And without thinking of herself, the mother tenderly kissed her daughter and contracted diphtheria and died. Real love forgets self. Real love knows no danger. Real love doesn't count the cost. That's the impulse of God. That's what we see in Jesus as he's headed resolutely to the cross. And then Jesus says, If you'd like to be a part of my kingdom, come join me in living out the heart of God. Follow my example of real love. After all, this story is not only the third time that Jesus declares his intention as our Messiah King to die, it's also the third time that Jesus has attempted to show his followers that this means they too must give up their lives in love for the sake of others. And alas, it's also the third time that the disciples completely miss all of this, they're still blind. Two weeks ago in Mark 8, we saw that the first time it was Peter who didn't understand. The second time in Mark 9, it's all 12 disciples. And now the third time, it's James and John who blow it. Jesus' other top three. In other words, none of them get it. None of Jesus' closest followers have eyes to see. None of them are immune from arrogant, selfish hearts. Maybe this gives us some comfort. But we've got to read the book of Acts, too, and see that they did get straightened out, and we are too, too. Well, somehow in today's story, James and John manage to look past everything that Jesus has been telling them about his humiliation and death. And all they can think of is the glory and the victory when when the Messiah is crowned king in his kingdom. And they only ask to be his top right and left-hand men. And now given their view of the Messiah that that Jesus would become the king of the whole earth and all the nations would bring their riches to him in Jerusalem, James and John, you know, they aren't asking for too much just to be the, the second and third most rich and powerful men in the world. Could there be any greater contrast between God's heart and human heart? And I'll bet if politics and leadership didn't come with all the hassles and pressures that that we know they do, most of us would be right there beside James and John lining up for those positions. The other ten disciples are, they're, they're indignant with James and John. How dare they, those two backstabbers, those power grabbers, going behind our backs, sneaking in, trying to get the best spots without giving us a fair chance. And meanwhile, Jesus, their leader, is headed for a cross, laying down all power and all privilege. Can you see the discrepancy, the scandal in all of this? Can you see it in your own life? When you want for yourself better treatment than your Lord, your king, claimed for himself. Well, Jesus corrects us in verse 43. He says, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. That's what life looks like in the kingdom that Jesus has come to establish. And it's what it looks like among the people he's come to save. So let's take a little time to get our minds and our hearts around this. Let's let it sink in. Let's begin by noticing that Jesus doesn't fault us for wanting to be great. It's fine to want to be great, just like it was fine for Marion Mill to want everything. But here's the catch. Most of us are looking for greatness. Most of us are looking for everything in all the wrong places. A.W. Tozer put it this way. He said, from the words of Jesus to his disciples, we may properly conclude that there's nothing wrong with desiring to be great, provided, first, we seek the right kind of greatness. Second, we allow God to decide what greatness is. Third, we're willing to pay the full price that greatness demands. And fourth, we're content to wait for the judgment of God to settle the matter at last. Well, God has decided what true greatness is. He has come to us in Jesus Christ, and he has showed us. The well-known author and uh, speaker Jill Briscoe recalls her trip to Croatia in the 1990s during the war there in the former Yugoslavia. She says, in Croatia, I was asked to speak to a church gathering for about 200 newly arrived refugees Refugees from this area of the world are mostly women because the men are either dead or are in camp or fighting. This group of Muslims, Croats, and a few Serbs had fled to a church on the border of a battered Croatian town. The town was still in danger of sniper fire and bombing, but the church had escaped because there were apartment buildings between it and the guns. The attackers had tried to fire shells over the apartment buildings. To the church, but they hadn't managed to do it, and so the church that became a refuge and a receiving and a feeding place. We worked all day visiting with the refugees, and at night a service was held in this huge old church, and I had to speak. I didn't know what to say. Everything I had prepared seemed totally inadequate. So I put my notes away and I prayed, God, give me creative ideas they can identify with. I told them about Jesus, who, as a baby, became a refugee. He was hunted by soldiers, and his parents had to flee to Egypt at night, leaving everything behind. I could tell the people began to click with what I was saying. I continued telling them about Jesus' life, and when I got to the cross, I said, He hung there naked, not like the pictures tell you. They knew what that meant. Some of them had been stripped naked and tortured. At the end of the message, I said, All these things have happened to you. You are homeless. You have had to flee. You have suffered unjustly. But you didn't have a choice. He had a choice. He knew all this would happen to him, but he still came. And then I told them why. Many of them just knelt down and they, they put their hands up and they wept. And I said, He's the only one who can really understand. How can I possibly understand? But He can. This is what people did to Him. He's the suffering God. You can give your pain to Him. That's what makes God great. You know, I think the problem with the disciples and the problem with us very often is that we have a false conception of God. We think of God and we strain to picture a being great and powerful enough and and wealthy enough and uh, rich enough and intelligent enough and splendorous enough to be worthy of the name God. And then we seek some of that greatness for ourselves, too. We forget that what God is like is most fully displayed on the cross in leaving behind all of his greatness and, and enduring humiliation and loss and death. In other words, we don't think of God rightly until we think of him choosing to writhe in anguish and shame on a cross because of his love for us. And because we are made in God's image, we have also been created to give our lives in loving sacrifice for others. That's what true greatness is. And so we are most fully human when we are great like God is great. When we're following His Son Jesus on the way Of the cross. You know, Martin Luther, the great 16th century reformer, got this. He vigorously critiqued many of the church leaders of his day because they lived by what he called a theology of glory instead of by a theology of the cross. These clergy had a wonderfully exalted view of God and his greatness up in heaven successful, powerful, beautiful, majestic. And so they sought to imitate God and they administered vast church hierarchies. They fought wars. They built magnificent cathedrals. They commissioned the composition of wonderful musical masterpieces and great works of art. But yet they never quite got around to caring for the needy or loving their enemies or defending the cause of the powerless or sympathizing with the suffering. But Luther insisted that they needed to get their eyes back on the cross. That that's where God is best revealed. That that that's where God is most glorified. Which is why when Jesus finally is raised up and glorified in the Gospels, it isn't James and John who are found at his right and left hand sides. But it's two crucified criminals. And Jesus says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, then you take up your crosses and you follow me too. Put your life aside like Marion Milth did. Become a helper. Selfless, selflessly serve those around you. But the wrong view of greatness is all around us. And so we so quickly forget all that Jesus taught and, and showed us, even in the church, and we revert back to making greatness the opposite of what it is. I was flipping through an old issue of Christianity Today magazine, and, and I found some telling examples. One ad was for a well-known Christian university, and it featured a picture of U.S. Senator John Thune, a graduate of that college. And in the picture, Thume has his arm around George Bush. And and they were celebrating Thume's landmark victory over the then Senate leader, Tom Daschle. And the ad headline reads, Dream Big. And the ad promises that with an education from that university, all you'll need to decide is what you want the headlines to read after you graduate. Another ad suggested that you can achieve unparalleled financial success by selling their VeggieTales merchandise. And in the process, you'll have a tremendous positive impact on the lives of thousands of children. That's what those plush toys do, you know. A third ad for another Christian college had the headline, Another World Leader From, and then the name of that college. And then there were my favorite two ad headlines. It's good to be comfortable, and your comfort is our business. Both ads for companies selling uh, cushioned church pews. So how do we follow our crucified Messiah in a world and in a church which is so enamored with glory and greatness? I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong to be well-educated or to be a world leader if God has gifted you and called you to be that. But it's all about why you're doing it and how you get there and what you do once you're there. Jesus makes it really simple. He says, be a servant. Be a servant. Don't seek to be great. Don't seek to be served. But put yourself aside and serve others. There's a million ways to do it. And every way is one more little instance of Jesus being king. And of his kingdom breaking into this world. And of us becoming truly human. And truly all that God has created us and saved us to be. May we be a community of such people. Let's pray. Jesus, we admit that like the disciples, we come at this half blind and yet you are touching us as you touched them through your word through your example and i pray jesus that you'd continue that that you would open our eyes open our hearts transform us give us hearts of love give us hearts of humility teach us to serve teach us to sacrifice teach us to love wherever Love takes us, in your name, amen.